Hello, everybody, and welcome to another First Year Experience podcast. My name is Gerson Salinas. I'm going to be the host for today. I'm very honored. And today we're talking about the academics of horror. We have two very special guests, and we're also joined by my co-hosts, Nick and Jerry. So I'm going to, I'm going to give it up for, for the guests to introduce themselves, and we can get going. I can go first. Um, so I am Dr. Catherine Medela-Watson, and I'm an associate professor in Mexican-American studies, and I'm also the co-director of gender and women's studies. For the past like five, six years or so, have been researching um, Latinx speculative aesthetics, which is an umbrella term for horror, fantasy, and science fiction. I'm David Bowles. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Literatures and Cultural Studies, where I am also the coordinator of the English Education Program. I'm perhaps also maybe even more importantly for this conversation, an author. I've written 24 books, um, a lot of them speculative, many of them horror or spooky. When we're talking about children's work, it's not always horrifying, but it certainly is spooky and creepy. I also do research into speculative fiction, but its implications for the secondary classroom and how um, own voices speculative fiction can be a, a tool for enhancing literacy in, in secondary kids who are from communities of color. So how does one go about studying horror? I feel like that's a very interesting thing, but it's not very common, I don't think. How did you guys get into it? first thing that happened was like loving horror. Growing up, reading like pulpy uh, comics and historietas from Mexico that had like lots of dark elements in them, being read to um, growing up in a Mexican-American household where cucuis were like the main, um, you know, staple of storytelling. You know, I, from the time I was born, the very first lullaby was sung to me was, duermete mi niño, duermete mi ya, porque viene cucu y te comerá. So you're like, when you're a little kid, you're already kind of like inducted into the world of scary stuff. And um, so you, you get like a, you get a taste for it. Um, and, you know, as I gradually over time became a reader and, and became like fascinated with, you know, like literature, um, canonical literature at first, which is like what was being poured into my head when I was um, in school in the 70s and 80s, and then expanding that out to uh, literature by Latinx authors and other authors of color in the United States, you know, I was still always kind of looking at those darker elements and, and thinking about why they exist, what they, what they do for the reader, um, what kind of impact they can have, what kind of bridges they can cross um, when we're thinking about literacy and things like that. And so um, that's, that's the part of it that I, that I have thought about in terms of scholarship is like, why is horror so popular and what's its place in the classroom? How can it be used to tap into um, what we call students' funds of knowledge, like their own like culturally and regionally specific ways of understanding the world and learning so that we can make them see themselves as readers and writers as well as like oral storytellers that they often tend to be. And so like, that's, to me, there's like a, an important connection there. Um, that's what I've explored. Yeah, so um, similar to Dr. Bowles, um, I grew up, I'm also a mixed heritage Mexican-American. I grew up in San Antonio, which if you don't know, is the second most haunted city in the United States, only second to New Orleans. But like, if you think about like the history of like both New Orleans and San Antonio in relationship to like slavery and colonialism and these kind of like hauntings that make sense. But yeah, so I also grew up around, I think like the first ghost story I ever heard was like La Llorona when like my cousins were babysitting me when I was a kid and trying to like, like 
control me and like <laughs> scare me, right? Yeah. Um, and I also grew up around like, we had so many, um, so many like ghost stories and legends and folklore in Santa, like um, the donkey lady, which I'm sure I'll talk about later, but these populated my imagination as a child. Something I also realized, and this might be the first time I'm saying this like out loud in a public forum. So my father, I don't know why this didn't click, um, worked at a cemetery when I was a child. <laughs> I don't know okay. why. So long I love it. Time. I love it. You're having yeah. like this, yeah. like this as we speak. It's great. I know. Yeah. And so but, like, I have very vivid memories of being like four or five years old and seeing um, dead bodies. Uh, I know it sounds like kind of traumatic and that's not why I'm, I'm bringing it up, but there is a kind of um, solemnness or like gravity to that, that I think also in turn like informs how we think about horror. But anyway, flash forward, um, this sort of interest, I'm being surrounded by this, these kinds of ghost stories and horror fed into my research later um, when I was a doctoral student. Um, I did a whole dissertation on representations of like the ghostly and alien in um, Central and South Texas Latinx cultural production. And then later on, um, I co-edited collection Altar Mundos, um, Latinx speculative film culture popular. I can't even remember the names of my own books. Film, <laughs> film popular culture literature, it has all those in there. And so one of the things I'm primarily interested as now an academic is how horror operates as not just a genre, but a kind of structure of feeling that is culturally, historically conditioned. So that um, horror for African-Americans or Latinxes or indigenous peoples is maybe like qualitatively different than that of predominant Anglo um, or productions, right? That was kind of one of those questions that I kind of had about like the Latinx community and our representative like folklore within, I guess, mainstream media. I mean, that movie that just came out was like the Curse of La Llorona. And I kind of wanted your thoughts on that. It seems to come up and it, it comes up with a, in a couple of conversations that we've had in previous episodes. And, you know, like, what are your opinions on that, on how like mainstream media has kind of like influence on horror with like traditional folklore from like, you know, let's say the Latinx community. What's your perspective on that? Well, I mean, I, I mean, the, the movie itself, I'm not a big fan of whatever. I, I wish they'd had a Mexican-American actress playing the protagonist. My problem with it is more like it's too little too late. And I've been, um, and I know many other Mexican-American writers, screenwriters, critics, teachers, so forth. I've been trying to get a, a series off the ground for about four years now. My book, Border Lore, um, which is you know, these dark folktales from the border regions was optioned. I worked for a long time with a couple of production companies. We had a showrunner and like everything was set up. We were working with El Rey, the, the network to, to launch it. And then ultimately they just like, they never pulled the trigger. And, and then, you know, we've, we've been trying to other places and I just having, you know, worked some in Hollywood and I've done, you know, some screenwriting and some, you know, I was the translator for the, for the now failed Amazon uh, series about Cortez and Moctezuma that they pulled the plug on because of COVID and stuff. We've been trying for decades to to have the kind of representation in Hollywood that will be commensurate with our consumption of, you know, especially horror. Uh, like there should be like tons and tons and tons of movies and, and TV series featuring um, our legends and, and our sensibilities. There are not. Um, and it's just really frustrating when you finally see something get launched when you've been in the midst of trying to make something happen and it gets launched because it's 
being shepherded by white people through the white gaze, you know? And right. um, so, I mean, that's kind of my problem with that. I mean, I'm glad that stuff is getting made that is, you know, us adjacent or whatever, but um, mm -hmm. it's, it's not enough and they're fiddling their thumbs and they have this huge market and none of them wants to take it seriously, which is why, you know, I working with, with groups like the, the group that I formed, uh, Dignidad Literaria, and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and other groups to like try to hold Hollywood and publishing to account and like, you know, pull them, bring them before Congress and say like, hey, what the hell guys? Chingales is kind of in there, right? So um, that, that's, yeah, I, I don't have good feelings about it at all. It's basically what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Merla Watson may have a slightly different perspective. No, um, so to be honest, I have not actually watched the film uh, precisely because of the critique that I had already read that, that David brings up. However, La Llorona and the Chupacabra, um, the Kukui have made appearance, have had cameos in um, uh, television show series like Grimm. Every time, you know, it's often a white producer, writer, and they, they just get it wrong. Um, and they don't get at the complexity of um, our folklore. So for example, there was one episode on the Chupacabra in the Grimm television series show. Um, which ended, I think, in 2017. Um, and it was the most predictable, racist, xenophobic depiction of the Chupacabra. It basically embodied this, like, um, you know, fear of the Puerto Rican other at some point. And I think I showed this recently in a presentation. I had, like, a still frame from, like, um, like the Chupacabra, which looks very kind of racialized. Um, is like on top of like a white guy going after him. And it's just a very sort of kind of sums it up. <laughs> but yeah, and so and I think one of the important things that David is underscoring is that we need Latinxes and people of color are generally producing speculative productions for production. Um, and so I've been really excited to see, um, you know, the work of Jordan Peele um, and you know, his, his film, which center the, the black experience of horror, right? You were talking about um, like the difference between like black horror or folk folklore uh, and Caucasian and Hispanic. What do you think makes uh, like the Latin folklore uh, different? I mean, the folklore is different and what it symbolizes when it's portrayed through like a white lens versus a brown lens is also different. So for example, there's this really great um, and I'm sure David will talk about his work, um, which provides lots of the examples of like folklore and monsters like the Chupacabra and through a culturally specific Latinx lens, right? But I was going to mention there's a short story, um, Refugio, um, by Terry de la Pena. And the vampire, the like central, or the central character of the story is a vampire, and she's a Chicana lesbian, and she's like defending El Vario from basically the self-appointed like white vigilante Stan who's like going after, um, who's walking around with his gun. And it's very, and the story is written before um, Trayvon Martin, but it's very sort of prophetic and disturbing. But it basically gets at like the real monster is like colonialism and racism and violence against brown bodies, not a vampire or her lesbian lover who's like this like cool like shapeshifter. So it really kind of um, reverses this idea of what we consider to be like the other or or monstrous and it doesn't necessarily play with 
folklore. In fact, it kind of imports and translates within the Latinx context, um, European folklore, you know, shapeshifters, vampires, werewolves. Yeah, yeah, that's something like um, what um, Silvia uh, Moreno Garcia did with her vampire novel set in Mexico City um, uh, that also is playing with, I mean, it, she she's drawing from, and I mean, I consulted on the book a little bit, so we had some interesting conversations. So she's drawing somewhat from Mesoamerican traditions, but she's bringing in, you know, the European tradition and, and trying to reform it. I mean, I think to answer your specific question first, um, there's definitely a difference in our folklore as opposed to other folklores. I mean, and there are similarities as well. I mean, folkloric studies, uh, comparative folkloric studies find all kinds of patterns that are shared across the world. And our you know, Latinx folklore, Mexican-American folklore is a blend of you know Spanish and, and other types of European traditions and indigenous traditions. So of course, there are gonna be some, some places where they overlap. But I think especially in the United States, the Latinx experience of being othered of being, um, you know, mistreated and, and oppressed and, and so forth, having to try to decide between whether to adopt the hegemonic whiteness that has the, the reins of power in this country or to double down on our indigenous heritage to separate ourselves from whiteness or find some Nepantla where we can be our own thing. I, all of those um, issues of identity are reflected in our, our folk tales, you know, the, like the things that I was talking about, like being sung you know creepy songs when you're little and being told about la llorona la mano pachona and just all these other things when you're a little kid um all of which as as katie was saying you know are being told to you as a way to keep you from harm you know so that you won't endanger yourself the, um there's also an element of we're outsiders living in this country we shouldn't be outsiders because we're living on our ancestral land but we are we've been made into other we've been othered and, and made into outsiders and so you need to listen to your community when your community tells you these rules because there are monsters in the world and they're not, you know, manos pachona and cucuis and so forth. They are like white people and, and other non-Latinx people who are trying to keep you in your place. And um, so I, I think that's, there's like a, a level of nuance about our social condition and, uh, and a certain set of ethical and aesthetic principles that have that center community and familia um, rather than the individual hero, right? So the old adages and the help of your abuela and all, that's what saves the day and not your ass mm. like clever hero, right? No. You know, I remember, I recall uh, my first year in college coming back home and I was reading um, uh, Limon's Dancing with the Devil. And, and coming to my grandmother's house and asking her about the story and if they remember, right, what was it, Bocasio 2000 in McAllen. And, and I remember, you know, my grandmother explaining, right, giving me her version of the story, but also showing me things and teaching me things that I had not thought about. And so she, very much similar to what you just said, she talked about community, she talked about the individual, she, she framed it around vice, and this idea of vice and 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 then and then introduced me to other stories that kind of fit within that that same genre. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate that. I, I think, um, you know, a lot of us tend to look at horror from a very superficial lens and never think about what is the meaning behind right representation. Um, and so so thank you for for sharing that and, and enlightening us to that. I didn't think it was possible to have that conversation with my grandmother. And it was an incredible, like for me, it was just an incredible moment to have that conversation and to see, man, grandma knows her stuff. <laughs> like here she is like <laughs> deconstructing this, this, the appearance of the devil at a dance club in McAllen, right? Yeah, I think um, all of us have 
heard horror stories uh, since we're growing up. And I think it's very interesting what you were saying, uh, uh, doctor, that uh, we are told these stories uh, in some way to, to scare us of the danger because historically we've been telling horror stories since people um, gathered around the fire, you know, and what do you think makes it so popular today that we're so inclined to watch horror stories or spooky stuff to get scared? I mean, I think catharsis is part of it. Um, you know, you, you, you have fears. Um, it's a lot easier. It, like for me, at, at least the way I, the way I look at it, um, rather than like sitting around like just steeping in my fears about things that could happen to my family and blah, 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 blah. I mean, there's a point at which horror doesn't help anymore. But if I'm at a point where I'm just, I'm feeling anxious or whatever, pop on a horror movie and feel like afraid for the people on the screen and relieved when the people I, I like survive and kind of gleeful when the people that I don't like get killed. Um, <laughs> and I don't, ha I, you know, I can experience their fear without like being the target of any of the, the, the harm in the film. And it's it, like, it helps to, to release. It's a, re you know, a release valve. But Stephen King, has this great um, essay about um, about horror in which he says, you know, we've all got like this sub basement in, in our in our souls and our minds where these alligators dwell or the, or sharks. I can't remember if he said well, sharks or alligators. And he and he said like from time to time you have to throw them red meat. You have to keep them fed because otherwise they they'll come out. They'll take over. And so it's a, a way of exercising your demons. I guess he's trying to say. So I was also going to say, I think on a very basic level, we like to be scared and watch horror films and things about death because ironically it makes us, it gives us thrills and makes us feel alive, right? Horror has also, um, both in contemporary times and historically been a way to kind of um, manage fear and give it form. And it's not always so-called like politically correct or So for example, Dracula was a book that um, in the late 1800s voiced fears about swarthy European others immigrating into, you know, England. Or, you know, currently there are uh, Latina writers like um, Terry de la Pena, who I've talked about, or even uh, Miriam Gerba or Carmen Maria Machado, who are writing these kind of what I consider to be horror tales about like misogyny and heteronormativity and racism and how those things you know, intersect. You know, horror always speaks to present historical political context. And so, for example, I think part of Jordan Peele's popularity is not only um, the sort of excellence in his own craft, but also it speaks to this moment in which um, he is able to make visible um, the horrors that African Americans have to face, you know, on a daily, you know, basis. And, you know, this is what horror um, looks like not just in fiction, <laughs> in, in reality, right? I think that's totally true. And I, I just want to add that, you know, um, most recently, uh, Silvia Moreno-Garcia, who I mentioned before, her Mexican Gothic is kind of a, you know, a look at toxic masculinity and, and, and the way it um, impacts um, women and, uh, you know, issues of gaslighting and stuff like that. Um, really, really powerful. And, you know, I, I've tried to do the same thing in my own work, um, my story, um, Aslan Liberated, uh, which is, was, is in my anthology, uh, I mean, my collection, um, Chupacabra Vengeance, but has also been published in other places in a translation, is about, you know, Chupacabras, but it's also about the border wall, and it's about the, you know, demonizing of Cholos and Chicano culture, and 
those kinds of things. And so I think that like Katie's saying, there's a lot of value in using horror um, in that way to kind of like make statements about the, the true horror in the world. That makes a lot of sense because I think one of the first horror books that I ever read was I Am Legend and I was anticipating a movie and I read the book before the movie released. And when the movie released, I was just so upset with how much they butchered that book. Because in that book, you know, Robert Novell, right, was in this like post-apocalyptic world and there's zombies slash vampires around killing and like he's like concerned for his life. So he takes it upon himself to be killing off the vampires. And then towards the end of the book, he realizes he was the monster because he had been the one killing these people at night or during the day, I might say, because they're vampires or sleep during the day. He would kill them during the day as like time went on. The society that was developed from the monsters were, you know, considered no the new normal and he was the murderer and they hanged him. Yeah. So the, the movie just butchered that entire idea and I was just so yeah. disappointed. I'd like to think like that when we consider horror as like a way of telling a story, there's this kind of dynamic, right? And I wanted to ask um, uh, Dr. Bowles, like how, how has your writing changed from your perspectives of horror, like you, you write a lot of different stories. And I, I've noticed that you were starting to go into children's books, you know, to like bridge that gap for like within education to get, you know, kids more excited about reading. How is, how is your writing kind of changed? I, my, my trajectory is that I started with retellings of, of like folk tales and legends and so forth, and then moved into like my, you know, like original fiction that was infused with elements of like border culture and usually darker elements. Um, and then um, as I studied more and, and was studying Nahuatl, the language, and one of the indigenous languages of Mesoamerica, um, I began to, to filter in more and more elements of like the sacred stories of, of the Aztecs and the, the Maya and Purepecha and other people other peoples from Mexico. And so, you know, slowly all of those different elements have kind of like fused together to create um, like a sensibility in my story storytelling, um, kind of like a kind of texture and background against which I, I tell my stories and, and I can use that texture and background to tell stories to like different age groups. Like um, like my, this is my, my new series, my chapter book series, 13th Street, uh, which is for like kids ages five to nine. Um, and it is just these three Latinx cousins um, from South Texas who find themselves drawn into like an alternate world, which is kind of like the upside down in, in Stranger Things, um, like just like a different version of, of, a, of a coastal city that's kind of supposed to be like a cross between Houston and Corpus Christi. But it's just one long street that goes on forever and it's populated by monsters. And the monsters are, are creatures that I have kind of like cloaked for the non-Latinx reader to not be immediately aware, but they're, they're creatures that either come from Mexican-American folklore or they come from Mesoamerican myth. Um, and like bit by bit in the, the first three books, you don't notice it as much, well, in the first two books, but by the third book, you realize you're firmly in something that looks like the Mesoamerican underworld and that the creatures that they're fighting is are creatures from um, you know indigenous mythology and that denizens of the underworld that help to like purify the soul so that it can pass beyond it. So, I mean, those are the things that I like to do um, because they inform our identity, whether we're aware of it or not. I mean, folktale like lechuzas are, you know, shape-shifting witches that take owl form. Um, mm -hmm. Those have been around, like the, the idea of them, I don't know if they have actually been around, that I 
can't speak to that. But the idea of them has been around for like the better part of the last thousand years. They were called Chichli and and Nauti and by the Aztecs. And so a lot of the creatures and, and I've written various like nonfiction pieces like kind of tracing the, the existing creatures like Nahuales and Lechuzas and so forth and even the Mano Pachona has um, its roots in Mesoamerica. Because of all that, like the the fictional work that I do plays around with that. Like when I did um the middle grade novel that I co-wrote with Adam Gibb, what's called the Chupacabras of the Rio Grande, rather than just sticking with, you know, the Chupacabras as it has appeared as it appeared in Puerto Rico in the nineties and then was imported into Mexico during the, the term of, of Salinas de Otari. I tried to find analogs to the Chupacabras in Mesoamerican lore and bring those in so that like the creature has like always existed just under other names. And it, it infuses that sensibility infuses my work. Um and it also makes the work always about community and about families and about you know, people when like working together to solve the problems rather than a hero. And every time you just have a single hero doing something, invariably in my stories that hero is gonna screw things up and probably get killed because they shouldn't be trying it on their own it's that you don't win the war against evil or chaos or whatever through your own strength yeah and that kind of goes into a good bridge for the question i had for dr merla watson and i was speaking with um miss sanlivar about like your kind of your your scholarship and your research and how horror is subjective and how it shapes your experiences right so um could you talk about that like maybe like how that relation to our own experience and how it's like individually like has a role on how we behave or how we see things a certain way sure so like i said before um the way i approach horror um you know like many other folks lane david is a kind of structure of feeling that is in turn shaped by you know particular historical political context and so part of as mexican americans or people of color um, our political historical context is is racism right and so it makes sense that, and I keep going back to Jordan Peele just because his work is so popular right now. Um, and I'm making my way through Lovecraft country right now. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, it speaks to um, the, the lived experience of, of racism. The other thing that I'm really interested in that um, also overlaps with um, Cynthia Saldivar's work. Um, and by the way, Cynthia Saldivar has a great essay published in Altermundos, my edited um, collection, approaching uh, Christopher Carmona or Dr. Chris Christopher Carmona, who is also at our institution, whose short story, Rape Trees Are, are Real, that discusses uh, violence against um, undocumented immigrant women as embodied in, in rape trees, which are real, and how Horror can be not just a genre, but a mode of, of reading and, and interpretation so that we can apply a horror lens to these lived experiences. And that kind of extends our understanding of um, what you know, constitutes horror and, and the horror genre. And I was also going to add really quickly, um, just because David was talking mm -hmm. about she says that something I have to bring up a lot when I teach Latinx horror is that we can't take uh, symbolism for granted. And so like within uh, white Western culture, an owl, um, you know, normally symbolizes, um, you know, wisdom or et cetera, which is not to say that it can't in Mexican American literature. But when I talk about the lechuza down here, like everyone's like, whoa, <laughs> right? It's like a different kind of symbolism. Yeah. Um, or even like tropes of horror and gothic horror, like darkness. And R Maria de Guzman writes about this in one of her monographs that like that can't be taken for granted. So for example, like 
with documented immigrants, like darkness represents um, like safety, right? Whereas traditionally it's like scary unknown. So the point is, is that things that we think of as like art archetypes or, you know, universal like aren't and very much are like socially, spatially, historically constituted. We are um, coming to the end of the podcast. And I just wanted to ask, um, just for like recommendations. Well, the the new film, not the Curse of La Llorona, but La Llorona, the Guatemalan film, uh, definitely is one that I would recommend. Um, I've been watching a lot of horror like TV, and so the like the K the K drama Strangers from Hell. I just uh, finished binging that; is pretty harrowing. Um, Juwan um, Origins, which is obviously a Japanese like prequel to the Grudge films, is also like super bleak and. I don't know that, that you're gonna, if you watch it, that you'll feel catharsis more than you'll just feel like, damn, I can't believe I just watched that. That's horrifying. And I mean, I've been reading a lot. So definitely uh, like Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno Garcia, Zero Saints by Gabino Iglesias. Um, definitely things that you should check out. Lovecraft Country is definitely pretty fantastic. A bunch of my friends have a podcast that I really recommend called Castle of Horror. Um, where every week they review often very, very obscure and kitschy um, horror films. And they asked me to, to be on a recent podcast uh, about to, to talk about Darkman. And so I hadn't seen Darkman since it, since it came out like in 1990. And um, 30 years later, I watched it and I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> so it was a lot of So that's one I would not recommend. Um, I don't want to be repetitive of David because he stole, stole some of my thunder. <laughs> so I would, in addition to what David mentioned, um, actually made like a list here that I'm looking at my screen, um, but just a few. A Night of the Living Dead by George Romero, so who is Cuban-American. Uh, most people don't realize that like the first zombie film was produced by um, a Latinx person. Um, if you have not, I always tell students this in every class, like if you have not seen Get Out, you, you gotta see it. Um, mm -hmm. And it, and it speaks to, of course, like the, the black experience of, you know, the hordes of racism, but I also think in many ways it can be extended to the ex horrific experiences of people of color more generally in the US. There's also an amazing documentary called Horror Noir, um, a history of black horror. On Shudder, right? Yes, yes, yes. Shudder's, yeah, I forgot about Shudder. Shudder's awesome. Yeah, Jordan, basically anything Jordan Peele puts out, I'm, I'm there for. I'm still waiting for our, our Mexican-American Jordan Peele, but, um... I guess to also talk about Jordan Peele, I loved um, his like uh, participation in um, the remake of The Twilight Zone. Yeah, yeah. It's also really good. So yeah, but I mean, for sure, Get Out. Like if you, I feel like when I watch Get Out, I remember how like bad the current industry is in terms of horror. Like I'm like, wow, this is what a real like horror film looks like. Like it's, I think most students just like, really don't know that horror is totally something that you could go into school for. Like you could totally study in academic mm -hmm. and yep. it's it plays such an integral role in our lives. And it's like an aspect of life we live through, especially now in 2020. So um, for sure, look into like what, what um, courses UTRG offers. Okay, well, uh, I want to thank uh, my guests again, uh, Dr. Watson and Dr. Bowles. Thank you guys for this particular podcast and all of your your podcasts um yeah thank you for your work yeah thanks it's been a great great conversation now hopefully people who are watching or listening will go out and consume some horror i hope everyone has a great day and we'll see you on the next one